You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland, who served with distinction under both Democratic and Republican presidents. Undersecretary Nuland, welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to have you. Thank you, David. Great to be with you. So today, uh, we're approaching the one-year anniversary uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's a date that we're all focused on. Uh, I want to begin by asking you to describe the situation on the ground in Ukraine as we're about to enter the second year of this terrible war. Let me ask first, has Russia's uh, winter offensive that seems to have been underway for several weeks gained any ground? And do you think it's possible for Ukraine to take ground back this year uh, and how soon do you think that might begin? Well, David, let's start by going back to where we were a year ago when Russia had 100 battalions ringing Ukraine on three sides. And when they began their invasion, it was broadly expected that Kyiv would fall in a matter of days, that Zelensky would flee, and that Russia would have at least um, de facto, if not de jure, control of Ukraine within a matter of weeks. The Ukrainian people bravely fought that back. Um, today, Russia controls a belt that runs from Ukraine's uh, east all the way through the south back to Crimea. This much vaunted offensive that they started a few weeks ago has been able to gnaw at a few villages in the east, um, but at extremely high cost to the Russians. They are losing, by some estimates, uh, a thousand uh, young men a week in the battle for the little villages outside of uh, Bakhmut, Valadar. And you see guys like Prigozhin, uh, who runs the Wagner Group, complaining that Putin is not giving, or in the military, are not giving him ammunition, that they're leaving dead Russians on the battlefield. So the Ukrainians are fighting valiantly now to hold. Um, but as you know, they do plan their own offensive. Um, and we do believe that with uh, our support, they can and will make significant gains uh, when that begins. I want to come back to the strange uh, dissension within the Russian ranks in a minute. But, but let me ask you first, President Putin gave a major speech of his own this week. And one way that he marked the anniversary of this invasion was by withdrawing from START II, the treaty that controls strategic nuclear weapons between the United States and, and Russia. What practical effects will that have on U.S. national security? And do you think, as a longtime Russia watcher, that Putin is simply burning his bridges to the West? Well, first, David, he did not withdraw from the New START treaty. He suspended it. Uh, we're still trying to understand uh, what that means in practical terms. But the thing that's most important to know is that Russia has not been fulfilling its inspection obligations under the treaty for uh, at least two years. Uh, first, that was about COVID. But then in 2022, when we tried to have a meeting of the group that oversees treaty implementation, the Russians declined to come. When we offered them inspection of U.S. sites and asked for the same over Russia, 
they refused to allow that. Um, so, you know, he basically just declared for his own people because he had to do something, uh, what they have already done. But frankly, um, this treaty is uh, of at least equal value to Russia because they are not in a position now uh, to be rebuilding nuclear weapons. And frankly, we have no interest or intent uh, in doing that ourselves. So uh, to me, it sounded much more like uh, red meat to his base than a real uh, practical change of where we've been for more than a year. And will the suspension, and, and thank you for correcting my, my language, will the suspension of the treaty make any difference for the United States in terms of our behavior? Will we do anything different? We will not, David, and we've made that clear to the Russians. We, you know, he put out there that we would resume testing. We have no intention or need to do that. We would like to get back into mutual inspections. We would like to get back to a place where we can sit at a table and talk about implementation. Um, but it's Putin who's chosen to push back from that table. So let, let's talk about the political situation in Moscow and the circle around Putin. The uh, strange battle of, of tweets and, and postings between uh, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner militia, who you mentioned earlier, uh, and attacking by name the Russian defense minister uh, Shoigu and the chief of staff Gerasimov has, has been extraordinary. What do you make of this uh, as, a, as, a, as a Russia watcher? And do you think that this turmoil under Putin is going to have any effect on his ability to manage the war and indeed to run the country? Well, as, uh, as you know, Prigozhin and his Wagner group uh, have been instrumentalized by Putin and frankly by the Russian military for some years now, uh, playing, playing a role in supporting Russian interests in uh, Africa, in the Middle East. Uh, and when the Russian military hit difficulties around Bakhmut and in the East, Wagner was invited in to see if they could fight better than the Russian military. And they were having some marginal village by village success, you know, about a month ago. But now to see Prigozhin um, going after the Russian military, saying they're not providing him ammunition, they're leaving his boys dead on the battlefield, they're using them as cannon meat, as he said, really exposes uh, not simply the um, disagreements within the Russian elite, within the security apparatus about how to fight this war, but also the fact that Russia is facing extreme difficulties in terms of recruitment of, of, of soldiers. They, as you know, had to go out to the prisons and uh, get get conscripts from there, but also now with ammunition, et cetera. So the infighting is unprecedented uh, within Putin's rule in terms of the way it's spilled out into the public um, with Prigozhin uh, calling names um, and basically trying to get the Russian people's loyalty for his faction uh, and to undercut the Russian military while they are in a war. Absolutely unprecedented in modern or in, in um, you know, the last hundred years of, of Russian military involvement. So that's striking, uh, unprecedented uh, turmoil. And the obvious question is, does it endanger Putin's 
uh, political standing? Is he is he is he weak now in ways that matter? Well, Putin has been able to maintain and strengthen power uh, by having complete control over the various uh, factions of power in the Russian state, and frankly, over 20 years, playing them off of each other. But usually that's been done behind closed doors. For, so to have it spill out in public now, um, you know, certainly indicates that his usual methods of divide and conquer, of creating suspicion between groups uh, such that they compete, and he's the only one who can be the arbiter, um, has begun to fray. Fascinating. I want to ask you a, a personal question. You have been in the news, or at least the, the Twitter sphere, in the last 24 hours. Elon Musk, the owner of Twitter, uh, tweeted yesterday in response to some discussions about you. I'm quoting here, nobody is pushing this war more than Newland. And I'd like to ask your reaction. Well, I would start with uh, a basic fact here, which I'm confident is well known, which is if this war is to end, it could end tomorrow if Vladimir Putin choose, chose to end it and to withdraw his troops. Uh, so this is this is not about us. This is about choices that Vladimir Putin has made um, to try to bite off pieces of his neighbor. And if we allow this as the United States, if we don't support the victim in this aggression, then this aggression will be replicated all over the planet in the years to come. And, you know, uh, particularly folks with young children ought to be thinking about the future that they want to live in. So we're celebrating uh, celebrating is the wrong word, but but noting this one year anniversary tomorrow, I want to ask you to to look backward for a moment. Uh, you described as President President Biden did the extraordinary situation of a year ago uh, with Zelensky uh, under intense attack. I ask you, what about this year has surprised you the most? Is it the performance of the, the Russian military? Is it the strength of Zelensky? Uh, is it our ability to use technology supporting the Ukrainians? What, what's what's the thing that stands out in your mind uh, at this one-year anniversary? Uh, I would say most of those things, David. First and foremost, that virtually every analyst, as they watched Putin get ready for this battle, um, and you'll remember that uh, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin began warning that Putin had this um, plan as far back as November of 2021. Most people predicted that if, if Putin invaded, he would have control of Ukraine, he would have control of Kyiv, he'd have control of the government within a matter of weeks. The fact that the courage, resilience, uh, strength of the U Ukrainian people has uh, largely relegated the supposedly great Russian military to um, a 20% corner of Ukraine is, is uh, nothing short of um, miraculous in terms of, of modern warfare. But as my boss likes to say, it makes a manifest difference when you're fighting for your own country, uh, when you're fighting for your own land uh, versus uh, Russia attempting to conquer largely with a con conscript military. I think that the terrifically um, horrible Russian military planning and the hubris that underlay it 
you know, you remember in those first weeks, um, 20, 30 kilometer convoys of Russian trucks just sitting in Ukraine, uh, you know, with in the open air, sitting ducks for Ukrainian attack. But also the fact that Putin has been willing to sacrifice so much of his country's future for this imperial ambition, for this dream of conquest. You know, in some categories, he's lost almost half of his military arsenal, ground forces in particular, but also aviation, um, that, you know, he's a million people, mostly men, have fled Russia rather than fight for him, that 200,000 Russians are killed or wounded. So, you know, that is uh, an enormous commitment for a country that um, already had not lived up to its, its European potential. And, but mostly, mostly um, what has uh, been just amazing is the, the courage, the bravery of Ukrainians, obviously on the battlefield, but also every single Ukrainian home and community um, and everything that they've had to do, including survive his uh, latest uh, evil tactic of hitting electricity plants, water plants, et cetera. And the fact that the Ukrainians have largely survived this winter um, through lots of cold and dark uh, because they're fighting for their own freedom and their own land. That's that's well said. Uh, President Biden made a, a, a brave trip to Kyiv this week. It was very moving to see the images of him and President Zelensky in front of St. Michael's Cathedral. But just to ask a, a, a blunt question, what do you say to people who argue that the administration has consistently been too slow in providing the significant support that it's provided, that it, that it was took too long to provide the HIMARS long-range missiles, it took too long to make the decision about tanks, uh, and, and then people say, well, and why, why is it taking so long to approve the F-16 training, at least, for the Ukrainian Air Force? How do you respond to that criticism, that, that this has been too, too slow? Well, first of all, um, just to say that uh, watching President Biden stand with President Zelensky in front of the beautiful St. Michael's Cathedral, the symbol of Kyiv, the symbol of Ukraine, was enormously moving. Um, I believe that President Biden may well be the first American president to travel into a war zone during a hot war when the United States did not have control of the skies or any ground forces. So an amazingly courageous move, uh, which just speaks to the president's commitment uh, First and foremost to Ukraine, I have been with him in Ukraine many times uh, when he was vice president uh, and to its freedom and sovereignty and independence, but also to the larger principle that if we let this stand in Ukraine, uh, dictators and all, uh, will be, you know, around the world will be emboldened to take chunks of their neighbor's country um, or in, invade further. With regard to the the military uh, equipment that's being provided, you know, I think what we've tried to do uh, is to plan with the Ukrainians as they um, evaluate what they are going to do on the ground, what equipment, what training they need, 
uh, to make those next moves. But it's now equally important, um, as you registered in one of your recent columns, uh, David, not just to be thinking about the battle ahead in the spring, but also the Ukrainian military of the future. Because if you think about Ukrainian interest, but equally importantly for Americans about American interest, uh, whenever this war stops, we need to ensure that Ukraine is strong enough to defend itself and to deter Putin from coming back again, because we've seen this movie now. When the war stopped in 15, he just spent the time uh, refitting, rebuilding, and getting ready to return, and we can't have that again. So we need to be thinking about uh, a, a strong integrated air defense for Ukraine, which is going to include some of the things we've already given, but probably things we haven't yet given, the training for that, it's going to have to have uh, a different kind of border control, et cetera. Um, so we're looking at all of those things in addition to working on um, supporting the Ukrainians for the battles ahead. And, and what about fast fourth or fifth generation jets? Aren't they going to need those too? Uh, you know, we're continuing to have those conversations, um, both internally as we look at um, longer term air defense, but also uh, with Ukraine. There are some countries in Europe that are interested in providing those. And as the president has said, that's the, the choice that they will make. But again, this is an evolving uh, picture as we see what Ukraine needs. So let's turn to, to some diplomatic issues, uh, starting with Secretary Blinken's meeting with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Munich uh, last week. Uh, it's been... Uh, reported by diplomatic contacts uh, and in the newspapers that Secretary Blinken warned uh, the Chinese foreign minister against China supplying weapons to Russia, something that China has not done so far. And it's also been noted that there are intelligence reports that are received by the United States, by, the, by Britain, that China is contemplating precisely that, sending, sending weapons. Give us a sense of, of, of your concerns, Secretary Blinken's, about what the Chinese might do. What what might they send? And did they did they seem to get the message from him, from his counterparts in the Quad, who also met with him in, in Munich? So, David, this has been a long conversation uh, with the Chinese, including uh, between President Biden and President Xi Jinping before the war started. Uh, again last year in Bali in November, um, and then again between Secretary Blinken and Wang Yi. The, the Chinese have claimed publicly, they've claimed globally that they are neutral in this conflict, that they are prepared to be peacemakers, um, but that would be belied by any uh, strong support that they would give to, to Putin. Um, we know that the Russians have consistently been asking uh, the Chinese for weapons. We also know uh, that some uh, Chinese companies, uh, whether the government is witting or not, have been sneaking up to the edge and trying to provide uh, some support. For example, the United States uh, sanctioned about three weeks ago a company called Spacity, which was providing uh, geolocation um, uh, support to the Wagner Group in, in Bakhmut. Um, so there was another renewed warning that uh, we will see this if you make a turn to providing uh, 
serious military support, whatever it is, um, and that will be a violation of sanctions. And it'll also be, uh, it'll it'll give the lie to Chinese assertions of neutrality in this in this war. So that conversation was a tough one in Munich, um, and I think it'll continue. So we have an audience a question on this very topic from James Rubin in New York, who asks, if China does provide arms to Russia, what will the United States do? Well, again, um, we never like to get into hypotheticals. What we are trying to do here is to ensure that the Chinese understand um, that this would be a complete step change, uh, not only in how they are viewed globally and their uh, claims of neutrality, but also in our relationship with China and that it matters uh, hugely to us. We've already made clear that we're prepared to sanction Chinese companies. Uh, we've done it already. Uh, there will be um, in the sanctions packages that we will be announcing tomorrow on the one year anniversary of the war. We will also be putting other constraints uh, on entities, Chinese-based or Chinese subs of entities in Europe, which we think are active in evading sanctions. Um, so we are watching very, very carefully, and this is not something that can be done under the carpet um, while China professes to be neutral. On this uh, question of, of sanctions, uh, Under Secretary, the sanctions that we initially announced with our with our partners around the world were supposed to cripple Russia's war-making ability. And that obviously hasn't happened. Uh, by some measures, the Russian economy is going to grow more over the next year than Germany or Britain. So what's going wrong and what can you announce tomorrow or in the near future that's going to fix what seems to be going wrong with sanctions? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd take issue with your premise, David. Um, I think that it'll be, you know, there are some predictions that uh, Russia may have minute growth, you know, 0 0.03 or something in, in 23. But what I would say is that, you know, the Russian stock market has lost a third of its value. Inflation is at 11% or higher. They're producing almost nothing. GDP is 7% smaller than it was before this war started. Uh, more than half of their reserves are frozen uh, by uh, Western and other governments. Uh, a million of their brightest and best have fled the country. Um, and again, uh, you know, Putin had 20 years to turn Russia into a modern democratic power, well integrated uh, with our economies. And instead, he chose to invest the great wealth of, of Russia in this war, uh, and half of it has been frittered away, both in terms of lives and in terms of, in terms of armament, not to mention the fact that what the sanctions we've put on have done, both in terms of the uh, sanctions on their energy um, sales, the oil cap, et cetera, but more importantly, the advanced technology that no country is now sending to Russia has essentially set them back a generation in terms of technological modernization, not just for their military, but for the economy as a whole. So he's mortgaging the future of a whole generation of Russians for his imperial ambition. And it's, it's frankly, um, for those of us who are 
you know, long-term watchers of Russia and had hoped for a better future and have many Russian friends, it's really um, very sad. But 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 uh, he's he's not Russia is not crippled. It continues to to press this war aggressively. What again? What more can you do as we hit this first anniversary that to 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 limit their ability to wage this war? So when you see the sanction, the sanctions package that's going to be announced, not just by the U.S., but by all the G7 countries tomorrow, it focuses very, very intently um, and intentionally, David, on sanctions evasion. So what the Russians have done, and you know, all countries work hard to try to adapt to sanctions, is that they are using third countries um, to try to evade the sanctions we've put on. For example. Um, they are importing a thousand percent more laptops, iPhones, dishwashers uh, from third countries, not because they need to, you know, work at home on their laptops, but so they can cannibalize th this machinery to get the advanced chips that we have denied them so that they can make more rockets, et cetera. So this is not about helping the Russian people or the Russian economy, it's about the war machine. So we will clamp down on that evasion uh, starting tomorrow. We will uh, clamp down on more Russian banks that have been evading sanctions. Um, and we will be much clearer uh, about uh, the fact that you know, even as Russia has kept its its oil on the on the world market, it is making a fraction of the profit that it used to make off of it. And we will clamp down on some of the middlemen who are uh, flipping back money to the Russian government as well. That's a helpful preview of, of what what will be announced tomorrow. Let, let me close in the, the remaining three minutes or so that we have with some questions about diplomacy. China is said to be readying a peace plan for Ukraine. I'd be interested in knowing what your sense is of that. It's said that they're likely to seek, in effect, a ceasefire in place. And second, is there active discussion at the State Department about alternative approaches that might achieve President Biden's stated goal of a negotiated settlement? First of all, on the uh, China peace plan, we await to see what the Chinese put on the table. Uh, this is supposedly to be announced tomorrow. I think, um, as you heard Secretary Blinken say when you spoke to him a week ago or so, what's most important is that any peace be a just peace and a durable peace. It can't simply be a cynical ceasefire that allows the Russians the time to go home, rest, refit, and return, as we saw. Um, so that's why the Ukrainians themselves have put out a 10-point peace plan, which focuses on their full sovereignty, their full territorial integrity. But listen, if, if uh, Xi Jinping can get Putin and his army uh, out of Ukraine, I think we'd all applaud and, and, and give a peace prize. Um, with regard to diplomacy, obviously, um, as professional diplomats, what we do is we think about contingencies. We think about if and as uh, the parties are ready to sit down, how we might be able to support and help. Um, as you may know, I personally played a role in trying to help implement the Minsk agreement during the Obama administration. In addition to the diplomacy that the French and Germans were doing, we had a, a U.S. channel uh, between Moscow and Kiev. 
and we were hopeful that we would make some progress there, but we frankly, um, you know, ran out of time. But the fundamental question is, it, does Putin want peace? Is Putin willing to allow Ukraine to have its sovereignty and territorial integrity? Or is this uh, going to continue to be about one man's drive uh, to reestablish some fantasy empire and to sacrifice his own country and Ukraine in the process? Um, because if that's allowed to succeed, he's not going to stop at Ukraine. He's going to keep coming towards us and he's going to embolden uh, other dictators and autocrats around the world to do the same. So, uh, Undersecretary uh, Newland, uh, you've been at the center of this uh, process of, of trying to help Ukraine. As you just reminded us, you've been involved in, in, in trying to deal with the threats of that country now for years. I want to thank you for joining us uh, as we approach the first anniversary of the war. I uh, hope that you'll come back and, and see us again. Thank you, David. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.